But we are in 1 Samuel 5 and 6 today. Basically, I'm breaking um, these books down into their natural narrative scenes, if we can say it that way, okay? Um, you know, the theme of 1 Samuel is all about kingship. It's all about monarchy. It's all about who is the king. But we see unfolding in this story this tension of who's really in charge, right? And so in the overarching picture of 1 Samuel, you see there's, there's kind of three kings that you see unfolding in the story. The first is, is God, King Yahweh. The second is King Saul, who we're going to meet very soon. And then the third is King David, who is kind of this beautiful archetype um, shadow of King Jesus. He's related to Jesus, uh, generations removed. And David is unique because he's a man after God's own heart, unlike Saul, who is not a man after God's own heart. But the, the kind of the question in 1 Samuel is, who is the king? Who's the king? And we would say, kind of as people reading in hindsight, so to say, the king is God. God's the king. And we see this clearly in the beginning of Genesis. You know, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, they're so important. And I feel like they're increasingly more important as we get into the chaos of, of 2024 and beyond. But in, in Genesis, we see that God creates all things. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth is formless, and God molds it, and he shapes it with the word of his mouth, like he's a king delivering, delivering these edicts. Let there be light, and there's light. Let there be an expanse, and there's an expanse. Let there be dry ground. Let there be bugs, right? And he's creating with these declarative edicts out of the word of his mouth. And, and God is, he's an amazing, incomprehensible being. This is the Bible calls him holy, 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 which means set apart, set apart, set apart. And he's uniquely holy because he's the only uncreated one. He's king. It's his house. He made it. He made the heavens. He made the earth. He's the only uncreated one, only him. It's his house. He built it, whether it's the heavens, the earth, it's his. But since Genesis chapter 3, since the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, there's been an open rebellion against God. Open rebellion. Actually, there's two open rebellions that we see in the book of Genesis. There's an open rebellion against the king from spiritual beings who the, uh, often you'll see translated, depending on the translation you use, as gods with a little g, little g gods. Or if, you want, if that makes you think really weird thoughts, think of it as fallen angels, if that makes you feel better, demons, okay? The idea that there are this spiritual rebellion, but there's also this rebellion from God's creation on earth. There's a creation in heaven that's in rebellion. There's a creation on earth that's in rebellion. And you can see the rebellion of man quite obviously. When you look at Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve say, we don't want to follow God. And they say, we're going to do what we want. And then in the next chapter, you have the first murderer show up on the scene. And then by the time you get to chapters um, 6, 5, and 6, you see this thing called Noah's Ark, this flood, where it says every intent of man's heart was bent on evil. That's like all he wanted to do was evil, 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 evil. And then even after the flood, you can't wash that out of a guy's heart. And so then we get to Genesis chapter 11 at this place called the Tower of Babel where all the people get together and they say, let's build a really tall tower and we can climb it and then we can just kick God off of his throne and like we can be in charge. And with the true arrogance of humanity, they're like, that sounds like a, a completely reasonable suggestion. 
I think this is a good idea. And it says God came down. He comes down to check out their tower. And he's like, you guys are ridiculous. I told you to scatter. But we see the spiritual rebellion as well. The spiritual rebellion is also obvious. It's obvious in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 6 when we see this, there's this spiritual power that's at play leading up to the flood. And we see it in Psalm 82 where it says that all God brings all of the gods, all of the spiritual beings in one place, and he's just judging them. He said, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're not doing what I tasked you with, and now I'm going to judge you like you're mortals, and you're going to die. And so we see this rebellion, and the end result of the rebellion against the king is that the world is in turmoil. The world is cursed by sin. Are you following me? Are you following me? Okay, all right. God decided, though, in the midst of all this, and even before, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. So even before there was time, God decided he was going to unwind, restore, redeem, repair the breaking of the world caused by this rebellion, even though he knew it would come at great cost to himself. And the cost that it would, it would cost God is sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God, this member, this person of the Trinity, this triune Trinity, the sacrifice, the execution of the Son of God. And on one level, the gospel, which just means good news, the good news is that there's this exchange where God says, I'm going to give you Jesus in exchange for the messed up world. I'm going to give the one for the many, the perfect for the imperfect. I'll take the grave, you get the garden, right? That's the big idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And the reality is that if the message of the gospel is true, then Jesus deserves some applause, right? He deserves fame. He deserves glory. He deserves weight, which is the meaning of glory. He deserves weight in our lives. And not just our lives. He deserves weight in every life on planet Earth. And not only on planet Earth, but under the Earth and in the heaven, doesn't he? Amen? Yes, thank you. He deserves glory. But here's the reality. The world is still an open rebellion. People do not bend the knee to Jesus. The gods are still in open rebellion. The spiritual beings are in open rebellion. They know their time is brief, right? They lash out. Think about the gospel. Jesus casts out a demon, and they say, what, have you, what do you want with us? It's not our time yet. Their time for judgment. They know that the time is coming. The clock is ticking, and they're lashing out like a cornered animal. It's estimated that 8 billion people are alive on planet Earth today. 8 billion. 3.4 billion of them, according to Mission Frontiers, 3.4 billion of the 8 billion live in unreached people groups. That means they have little to no access to even learning who Jesus is. There's approximately 17,500 unique ethno-linguistic people groups on the planet, and just about 7,400 of them, or 42% of the world's population, has limited to no access to the good news that Jesus Christ not just loves them, but loves them so much that he died for them. And of that, you think it makes sense that we should send at least half of our missionaries there. Well, 3% 
of our missionary work is done among these people who are not just laden with gospel poverty, they're also the poorest nations on the planet in this band that stretches across Middle East, Central Asia, South Asia, North Africa. Well, just as a heads up, I mean, a little aside, a little infomercial here. On March 10th, which is a Sunday, in the evening, we're going to gather together and we're going to pray for the Muslim world um, because it's the beginning of Ramadan. And Ramadan is when Muslims seek God for 30 days of fasting, and we're going to pray that they find him. Um, we're going to pray that they find him through dreams, visions, and neighbors who are willing to proclaim who King Jesus is. Because this is the reality, as we read in Philippians 2, and as we're going to see in the passage today, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. But not every knee will bow because of surrender. Some knees will bow because of submission. And there's a difference. You know, you get the Hulk, he comes up to you, he puts his hand on your shoulder and he pushes you into kneeling position. You're not surrendered. You're submitting. Your heart is still standing up. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. He will get his glory. But we don't want it to be submission. We want it to be surrender. And that's why we go. That's why we share. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, as we talked about last week, God allowed himself to for he allowed the Israelites to lose their battle, and, he take, and they take the ark of God, which the Israelites were treating as a power object, a trinket that was going to help them win their battles. It says, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God, and they brought it into the house of Dagon, and they set it up besides Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon, they put him back in his place, poor little Dagon. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord again, and the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk, only his torso, only the trunk of Dagon was left to him this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in the city of Ashdod to this day. Let's pause right there. So what's the deal? So it's customary in the ancient Near East that if I beat you, if my army beat yours and you had like a, a idol that you would bring in, um, you know, or you think of like a flag or a statue, we would take your statue and then we'd go home to our own God's temple and we'd put your God's idol in our God's temple and it was like a trophy. To, because the idea in their spiritual worldview was that if we're winning, it's because our God beat your God. It's like my God could beat up your God. That's why we won. And so there's an assumption here among the Philistine people that Dagon is the boss, okay? Now, you have to understand who Dagon is. Dagon is the fish god. He's basically like a mermaid, okay? Merman, sorry. He's basically a merman, okay? And you can look him up on internet and see little statues of him. He's got a funny little hat, and he's got, like, at the bottom of, like, a fish, you know, just like a merman or a mermaid. And um, 
And he was the fish god. He was represented the maritime protection and fertility. And they would sacrifice him crop, crops and livestock and fish and these sorts of things. But more importantly, he was also the chief god of the, of the Philistine pantheon of gods. Pantheon of gods meaning um, you think of like Zeus and he's got all the other gods. That's a, called a pantheon. Right? So he was like their version of Zeus. He was the big cheese, okay? And so Dagon is here, and when they wake up the next morning, he's flat on his face, bowing down to the Ark of the Lord. Now, the Ark of the Lord, the, the way that the Hebrew mind thought of this is the Ark of the Lord was where God would rest his feet. That's where he would rest his feet on the throne room. And so basically they come in and Dagon, one of the gods, one of the gods, you say, well, it's just a statue. It represents a spiritual being in open rebellion against the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And this demonic figure, whatever you want to call in the spiritual realm, unseen, we don't know. He's bowing down in worship to the one true God because he can't help it. And they say, we'll help you out. And he's like, oh, please don't help me out. And they lift him up. And the next day when he wakes up, when they wake up, He's not only lying down, but his arms are chopped off, his head's chopped off, and poor little Dagon got what he deserved. And it reminds me of Psalm 115, verse 5. They have mouths, speaking of idols, they have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. In other words, you trust in an idol and you're going to wind up dead. Whereas it says in Jonah, those who trust in idols sacrifice the grace that could be theirs. All right, tracking with me? Verse six. Well, the hand of the Lord was heavy. You're going to see that repeated. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified. He terrified and afflicted them with tumors. It's not a tumor. He afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. His hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. And so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines. And they said, what shall we do with the ark? Let's pause there. Listen, you know, um, the first thing we see in those first five verses is that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And the first person we see bowing in this passage are the gods. The gods are going to kneel. The spiritual beings in open rebellion. This isn't like a yin-yang, like Jesus versus God in this, or um, God versus Satan in this epic match. No, this is not equality, Okay. Every knee in the spiritual realm will bow. And that's what we see happening. But now we see not just every knee in the spiritual realm, every knee in the earthly realm is going to bow as well. And we begin to see that unfolding here in face of the Philistines, that the hand of the Lord is heavy against them and he's afflicting them because he's trying to give them a wake-up call. He's not afflicting them because he's cruel. He's afflicting them because he's saying, look what I did to your God, Dagon. I want you to open your eyes and see. I want you to see who I am. 
And I'm going to put some pressure on that pressure point because I want you to open your eyes and realize that I am the one who is in charge here. I am, not Dagon. He sends wake-up calls. His hand is against them. Like I said before, his hand is against them. He's forcing into submission. He made Dagon kneel. And now he's making them kneel. See, but the question is this. In the midst of the heaviness, in the midst of the tumors, in the midst of the oppression, in the midst of the the heaviness of the hand of God that's pushed upon their shoulders, the question that we should be asking rhetorically is, will they repent? Will they repent? Because the logical response to finding out that your God got his head chopped off is that your God is weak. And the logical response is to say, I don't want to follow that God. I want to follow the God who chops off other God's heads. Like, that makes sense to me. In my mind, I want to follow that God. And then God begins putting pressure on them. And you think the logical response is for them to repent and say, hey, guys, like, maybe we should open our eyes. Maybe we should see that that something is happening here that we're supposed to see, but that's not what they do. Instead, they sent and gathered together all of the lords and the Philistines, And they said, what shall we do with the ark? What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? I want you to notice here, you probably can't see it easily unless you have a paper Bible, but in the first paragraph, it was Dagon, 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 Dagon. It was repeated a bunch of times. You see what's repeated a bunch of times in the second paragraph? God of Israel, God of Israel, God of Israel, God of Israel. This says in verse um, eight here, they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. What are they saying? Like, let's send it somewhere else. Let's give somebody else the hand of the Lord. Okay, so they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them too. So they sent the ark of, the, of the God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out and they said, they have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us, to kill our people. So they sent. This is the third time. Third time, guys. You would think at some point in time when the hand of the Lord is that heavy against you, you would open up your eyes. But they sent him away again. They sent and gathered all the the lords of the Philistines together, and they said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, And the city, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Three times, three times, they send God away to another city instead of repenting. God forced them into submission by afflicting their health, by afflicting them, by afflicting their cities with terror. He forced them into submission, like they're tapping out. Okay? But inside their heart is still standing up. They're submitting, but they're not surrendering. See, God cares about your heart. He cares about your heart. 
He doesn't care that you show up at church. He cares about your heart. He doesn't care that you bend the knee to him in some kind of fake, feeble show of religiosity. He cares about your heart. And that's something they just don't want to submit. They don't want to submit their heart. The hand of God was very heavy. Kneel. Kneel. Kneel they do, but not in worship. Not in surrender. See, submission is not repentance. Submission is acknowledging defeat. Like Pharaoh. Acknowledging defeat only to try to rally the troops later to chase the Israelites down into the Red Sea. And that's exactly what we see here. But the reality is this. The gods will kneel. And the nations who don't repent, they will kneel too. They'll kneel too. Let's keep going. The ark of the Lord was in, I'm in chapter six now. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we shall, tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, and then you'll be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? And they said, five gold tumors and five gold mice. If you're looking, saying like, I don't know what to get Pastor Bill for Pastor Appreciation Month next October. How about some five gold mice, okay? That's what they say. So some five gold tumors, maybe some five gold mice, according to the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images. You have to make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. And perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from off you and the gods of your land. Okay, let's pause there for a second. So the people see what the leaders are resistant to. It says the Philistines. And in the original language, it's this idea that it's like the whole nation comes together and they come to the lords, they come to the, pri the priests, they come to the people in charge, and they say, what are we supposed to do with this? Like, you got to get this ark out of our land. And the response of the lords and the Philistine priests, they're like, well, you know, if we do that, they refuse to see it. And I think about in the New Testament when you see Jesus doing miracle after miracle after miracle. He raises from the dead, right? Raises from the dead. The soldiers come and talk to the chief priests and they say, like, he's gone. An angel of the Lord came, he's gone. And they go, don't tell anyone about this. Here's some money. Like, you think they would say, whoa, like maybe, did we just kill the Messiah? That's not what they do. Because when your heart is that hard, it's really difficult. And that's what, they, that's what the chief or the priests and the diviners and the lords are doing here as well. Their heart is hard, and they don't want to believe it. They want to believe that it was a coincidence. Their heart is too hard, is too stubborn to see God's work in their land, okay? And this is, and even the people see it. This is what they say in verse six of chapter six. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them. Did they not send the people away and then they departed? Now then, this is what you're going to do. Take and prepare a new cart and 
Two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them so they won't follow them, and take the ark of the Lord, place it on the cart, put it in a box, and at its side the figures of gold which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. They're still skeptical. This is what they say. If it goes on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, well, then we know it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we will know that it is not his hand that struck us, but it just happened to be a coincidence. All right? That's their perspective. Dagon's on his face. Dagon gets his head chopped off. Dagon loses his hands. Everywhere the ark goes, they're struck with tumors and mice and terror, and they're like, it's probably just coincidence. All right? This is their perspective. Let's keep reading. So then men did so. And they took two milk cows and they yoked them to the cart and they shut up their calves at home and they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of the tumors and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh. In other words, they didn't waver. They didn't go to the side. They didn't eat a little bit of grass. They didn't get a little drink from the brook. They beelined it right back to Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went, right? They're going, they can't wait to go back. They're going, all right? You guys can laugh, it's all right. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them. It's almost like a, a, it's like a comedy. You know what I mean? It's like, I feel like this is like a Monty Python thing. And the cows are going and the lords are like, and they all run in like a group of five and they're following them. Okay, it says, now the people, they, the, they turn either right or the left. The lords went with them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh, and they're looking over the border. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, man, they rejoiced. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped right there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the car, and they offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and it set them upon the stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on the day to the Lord, on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So the cart goes directly to Beth Shemesh. Obviously, um, God is telling the Philistines something. What is he telling them? He said, well, if it goes directly, then we know it was the Lord. But if it wavers, then it's probably coincidence. And it goes directly there. And so you would think their response should be, whoa, it's the Lord. Well, that's not their response. They say, eh, and then they go home to Ekron. They still refuse to repent. They still refuse to see it. They still harden their hearts. But the Israelites, they see the ark. And man, they rejoice. They're cheering. It's a completely different response from the response that we saw among the Philistines, isn't it? It's a contrast. They're kneeling as worship. They're kneeling as joy. They're kneeling as surrender. And we say, this is wonderful. This is so great. Let's keep going. Now we have a little paragraph, which I wrote in my, 
margins the history of the tumors and the mice. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities, unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. In other words, you can go check it out. That's what the author's trying to say. And we say, man, I'm so glad that the Israelites responded unlike the Philistines and they worshiped the Lord, right? Let's keep reading. And he, he meaning God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent. What? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of the Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down, take it up to you. And the men came and they took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to the house of, Adin- of Ad- Abinadab on the hill and they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from that day, the ark was lodged at kiriath Jerim a long time, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Wow, guys. You know, we think, well, maybe the Israelites will behave a little differently. Well, it says they looked. What does that mean? They looked at it. The point is that after seven months, their hearts haven't changed. They look at it. Scholars say the look idea, the look conveys this idea of an unholy intent. Maybe they're like, oh, look, it's the ark, and they're treating it as a tourist trap. You know, maybe you got a couple guys sneaking over and they lift up the lid. They want to poke inside, see what's going on. And they look, and this is what inspired Raiders of the Lost Ark because 70 of them die. They look at the ark and they just straight up die, sneaking a peek under its cover. And, and the idea here is their conclusion in chapter or in verse 20 is, who was able to stand? Well, listen, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, we talk about who's able to stand? Nobody. You cannot stand. The only logical response is to what? To kneel. You kneel before this king and you beg. But you know what? In the new covenant, in other words, as followers of Christ, you know what Paul says in Romans? He says, and he will make you stand in his presence. He will enable you to stand in his presence because now you are pure and spotless and righteous without guilt, without shame, without sin in the eyes of Christ. Righteous. And you will stand, and you will kneel in worship, not in fear. What a difference. But they're not there yet. The tragedy is verse 21. Like the Philistines, their conclusion is, send it away. Reminds you of Peter, doesn't it? Peter in the New Testament, when Jesus is on his boat, and Jesus is like, throw the net over to that side, and he throws a net over and he brings in all this fish. And what is Peter's immediate response? Depart from me. I'm a wicked man. 
You know what, guys? This shouldn't make you point at them and say, those guys are idiots. This should make you fall to your knees and say, thank God for the blood of Jesus. Thank God for the blood of Jesus that now, instead of saying, get away from me, we get to say, come near. And Jesus says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. What a contrast that the new covenant is with the old. That's why Paul says, it's nothing, it's a shadow. And if, we, if, if they were afraid to look at Moses with the shadow, can you imagine with the true glory of God coming out of us like jars of clay? It's unimaginable. Well, they ask him to leave. And leave he does. But he finds a nice home over with Abinadab and his family, Eliezer, for 20 years. And it's going to stay there for quite a while. What's the point? What's the point? You know, listen, in 1 Samuel, the whole point of 1 Samuel is about the monarchy. It's about the king. And what we're going to see in the next story is the Israelites following up on this. You got to see the big narrative, right? The next story, the Israelites are going to go and they're going to pull Samuel aside. Samuel who's like the tribal leader right now. And they're going to pull him aside and they're going to say, hey, Samuel, can we have a king like everybody else? That other king, like the one that gods bow down to, the one who makes nations kneel, we don't really want him. We want a king like everybody else. They're going to reject their king. They've been rejecting their king since Genesis chapter 3. And so have we. Listen, the gods will kneel. The nations will kneel. Jesus will come to his own, but his own will reject him. But then he'll die on a cross. He'll die on a cross to pay the full penalty of sin the full penalty of rebellion, the full penalty that we deserve, and he'll say, come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. The yoke that I offer you is not a firm hand that pushes you into submission. It's light. I've already paid it all. That's his invitation. See, the invitation now is not to kneel in submission. It's to kneel in worship and surrender and thanksgiving. It's the difference of the condition of your heart. That's what it is. You see, because when we kneel in worship, when you kneel in true surrender, it's like a knight when he comes before the king. And what does he do? He gets on his knee and he gives the king his sword. Because he knows his life is in the king's hand. The king can do as he wishes. Could chop his head off. Or he can commission him to great things. And when we come to Jesus now, not with a heart of submission, but a heart of loving surrender, knowing what he's done, that's what we're doing. We're kneeling before him. And we're saying, I'm, I'm giving you my life. And I know you're going to give it back a hundredfold. And you're going to use me for your glory in immeasurable ways. And so I'm yours. I know for a fact 
that there's people in this room who are like the Philistines. You've seen the hand of God. You've seen the power of God. You know, you can explain the ark. You can tell the stories. But you've never kneeled and surrendered. And I want to invite you to do that. And so we're going to have some of the elders up front, maybe in the back corner. And if you today want to kneel and surrender to the king, we'd love to pray with you. One humble beggar to the next. Because all of us, were not by the grace of God, would go the same way as Dagon and the Philistines. You hear me? Let's pray. You are worthy of it all, King Jesus. Our God reigns. Forever your kingdom reigns, Lord. Eternal life does not start when we die. John 3, 16 to 18 says eternal life starts when we're born again. Would you draw people to yourself that they might kneel before you and surrender, that today might be the day when they say, Please take from me my life. It's all I have to give. And so I give it to you, King Jesus. In your name we pray.